Chapter 27 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Trapped. Just as the morning bell was rousing the sleepy cell houses at San Gregorio to another weary day of serfdom, a gaunt wraith of a man climbed a rear stairway to a tiny apartment on Laguna Street, San Francisco. The early morning fog added to his ghost-like appearance as he softly rapped at the bedroom window with the knock that is the open sesame of the underworld. The woman sleeping within awoke instantly with a start, but lay quiet, fearing she still dreamed, for in her dream she had been with Boston Blackie, her husband. Again she heard the soft rap at the window. She sprang to the sash, looked out, and threw it open, seizing in her arms the scarecrow of a man who stood there and dragging him inside. "'Mary!' he cried. "'Blackie!' she answered. All the endearments of all the languages accentuated a hundredfold were in the two words. "'God in heaven, I thank you,' she whispered, falling to her knees with Blackie's stained and haggard face clasped to her breast. "'Boston Blackie is missing from his cell in the hospital, sir. "'He sawed two window bars and got out during the night. "'He left his clothes rolled into a dummy on his bunk, "'and the night guard didn't discover it until the morning count a moment ago. "'But he can't be far away. "'He couldn't have gotten over the wall "'and must be hidden somewhere about the prison, the night captain thinks. "'He has ordered the whole force out to make a search.' "'The hospital turnkey saluted the deputy warden "'and stood awaiting his orders.' There was no surprise in Martin Sherwood's eyes, and no excitement in his manner. "'And so he's gone,' he said. "'His convict suit in his bunk, you say?' the guard nodded. "'Tell the captain he needn't bother to search the prison-yard or buildings. He's wasting his time,' Sherwood continued. "'Blackie has five to seven hours' start, at least, and he's miles away from here now.' "'But he can't be. He must be inside the walls. He couldn't have gotten over them,' protested the guard. "'He's over the walls, safe enough,' Sherwood returned with conviction. "'Boston Blackie isn't a man to saw his way out of a cell and then hide in a dark corner of the prison and wait for us to find him. He's gone, without a doubt.' The deputy pulled his phone toward him and called the chief of police of San Francisco at his home. "'Boston Blackie, the safe-blower, has escaped.' he said when a sleepy voice answered him over the wire. "'What? It's the first time, yes, but there has to be a first time for everything, you know, particularly when you're dealing with a man like Blackie. Now, Chief, he's bound to go straight to Mary Dawson, a woman who is living somewhere in your town. I wish you would put your best men out quick to locate her. It ought to be easy, for every crook in town knows them both, and somebody will be sure to tell where she is living.' You haven't a second to spare, for both she and Blackie will drop out of sight before night so completely we will never find them. We'll offer five hundred dollars reward for Blackie. Sure. All right. I'll be over. Martin Sherwood hung up the phone and turned to the work before him with something akin to pleasurable anticipation in his face. Like all truly strong men, he found satisfaction in a battle with a worthy foeman. Meanwhile, in Mary Dawson's Laguna Street apartment, Boston Blackie was no less alert than Martin Sherwood. "'Does anybody know this address?' 
he asked the woman who sat on his knee stroking his hair and running gentle loving fingers sadly over the deep lines left in his haggard face by pain and illness i moved only a month ago and you sent me word she said scarcely anyone knows i met diamond frank and stella last week and they were up here to dinner we must get away from here at once Blackie said. We've got to disappear so completely it will be humanly impossible to trace us. One overlooked clue, the slightest in the world, will lead the deputy warden to us. He's no ordinary copper. It's a hundred to one he has half the detectives in town out hunting this flat now, for he knows, of course, that I'll go to you. But, little sweetheart, I'll promise you this. Whether he finds us or not, he'll never take Boston Blackie back to San Gregorio. Have you my guns? Mary nodded, shuddering, and began to throw clothes into a trunk. Never mind packing the trunk, Mary, Blackie corrected. Just throw together what you can get into a couple of suitcases, dear. We'll leave everything else behind. We're not going to use any transfer man in this move, little woman. Mary sighed as she obeyed without question. Little feminine trinkets are dear to a woman, and she hated to leave them. But Blackie's word was the only law she knew. There was nothing to distinguish the man and woman carrying suitcases who took a car near Mary's apartment and crossed to the other side of the city from scores of other passengers who traveled with them, except the man's emaciation. They rented a room in a modest lodging house on the edge of a good residence district. "'Mary,' said Blackie the moment they were alone, "'there's work for you to do quickly. We're safe here until tonight, but no longer. Go downtown to Levy's theatrical shop.' Tell them you're playing a grandmother's part in an amateur play and get a complete old woman's outfit. White wig, clothes, shoes, everything. Get a cheap hat and a working girl's hand-me-down, too. You're too well-dressed not to attract attention where we're going. Draw every dollar we have in the bank just as soon as possible, for every moment you are on the street is a danger. You better bring something to eat, too, just a loaf of bread, for I ruined my stomach with lye to get into the prison hospital and can't eat anything but crusts. Above everything, be careful no one recognizes you and trails you out here. Every copper in town must be looking for us by this time. He drew two revolvers from the suitcase, looked carefully to their loads, and laid them on the bed. I'm going to sleep while you're gone. I didn't get much rest last night, he said, smiling happily. At noon that day, while Boston Blackie lay sleeping in the Crosstown Lodging House, the police located Mary Dawson's Laguna Street apartment. Diamond Frank had casually mentioned the address to another crook, who happened to mention it to a bartender who was a stool pigeon, and so deviously but surely it finally reached headquarters. The chief of police called in a dozen of his best men, armed them, and sent them out in two autos. "'Take no chances with him, boys,' the chief warned. When he's lying dead in a morgue, it might be safe to walk in on him. But I wouldn't gamble on it then unless I'd seen him killed. He's a bad un. Take care of yourselves. The chief's men did so to the very best of their ability. They put officers with drawn guns at every door and window, outside. When everything was ready, and not even a mouse could have escaped from the house without being riddled by a dozen bullets, the captain in charge of the expedition asked who would volunteer to enter the apartment and arrest the escaped convict. The policemen shifted uneasily on their feet and glanced expectantly at each other, but no one spoke. Somebody had an inspiration. "'Let's send the landlady to the door with a phony letter,' 
he suggested. When the girl comes to the door, we'll grab her and bust in on Blackie before he knows we're in the joint. The plan was adopted. The landlady knocked on the door with four brawny men behind her, ready to seize whoever opened it. There was no response. Finally, the landlady herself opened the door. Gone, chorused the detectives as they saw the empty rooms. The girl's out somewhere, probably to meet him. Then they'll come back here, both of them, the captain declared. They haven't blowed. Look at the trunks and clothes. Now we'll get them dead to rights. We'll just plant inside here and cover them when they come back. But the guards in Mary's flat stayed there three days waiting to pounce on the man, who never came. Meanwhile, Sherwood started a canvas of every hotel and lodging house in the city. On the third day, a detective brought in the information that a landlady, when shown Blackie's picture, identified it as that of a man who came with his wife and rented a room on the morning of the escape. They had two suitcases. The woman went out and came back with some packages. The next morning, when she went to collect her rent for the second day, the couple had gone. That was all the landlady knew. I thought so, Sherwood mused when the news was phoned him. He's hidden somewhere he thinks is perfectly secure. Every exit from the city is guarded, but that's pretty much wasted effort, for Boston Blackie, if I know him, won't stir from his place of refuge for weeks, maybe months. The man who finds him now will have real reason to compliment himself. And, he added with unalterable determination, I'm going to be that man. Sherwood turned the management of the prison over to a subordinate spent his time directing the investigation of the hundreds of clues the reward brought to the police, but all proved futile. Fewer and fewer clues came in. A newer sensation crowded stories of the hunt for Boston Blackie from the first pages of the newspapers. The police, frankly, were beaten. Only Martin Sherwood kept at the task. Sherwood puzzled and pondered for days without finding the clue he sought. Every detail of the escaped convict's appearance as he last saw him on the prison lawn was graven photographically on his brain. He remembered the emaciated face, the two brilliant eyes, the sunken shoulders from which the flesh had fallen away during his illness in the hospital. The doctor said that illness was real, he pondered. Stomach trouble, he said. And he's not a man to be fooled. Blackie was really sick, without doubt, and yet that sickness couldn't have been mere chance. He hadn't eaten anything but outer crusts of bread for weeks. Even the night he escaped, he left the inside of a loaf. He always did that, always threw away the inside of bread loaves, because he couldn't digest them. Martin Sherwood sprang to his feet more nearly excited than he had been in years. It's a long chance, he said to himself, but it is a chance. He'll be more than human if he has thought of that, too. The deputy warden ordered his car and drove out to the city incinerator, where garbage wagons of the city consigned their ill-smelling burdens to a cleansing flame. Sherwood explained to the superintendent. Tell every garbage collector in the city, he said, that I'll pay the man who finds the hollowed-out insides of loaves of bread in a garbage can one hundred dollars for the address from which that can was filled. In three days, Mary, just three short days, we'll sail out through the Golden Gate. You and I will be together with a new world ahead, and Martin Sherwood behind, nursing the bitterness of defeat. Mary, with a better, sweeter happiness in her eyes than Boston Blackie had ever seen there, 
clung to him as he spoke. They were in the two small rooms, kitchen and bedroom, in which they had lain securely hidden during the ten days which had elapsed since Blackie's flight from prison. Their landlady, who scrubbed office-building floors at night to support herself, lived alone on the floor below. The house was an attic cottage with a garden in San Francisco's sunny mission. Boston Blackie and his Mary sat hand in hand, planning a future without a flaw, a future as rosy-hued as the girl's cheeks. The realization of their hopes was very near now. In three days a steamer sailed for Central America ports. Their passage was paid. The hunt for Blackie had died down. Once aboard the steamer and out of the harbor, a matter of little risk now, they would be safe and free and unafraid. So they sat and planned at happy whispers, for caution still bade them be low-voiced while their landlady was in the house, while just below them, low-voiced and cautious too, Martin Sherwood questioned that landlady. End of chapter 27